Hey everyone, welcome to the Southside Church Podcast from Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. We're praying that hope would rise in your life as you listen to this message today. One of the most interesting months of my life was the last month before my first year of teaching high school. Now I got hired in the spring, but I didn't get my final course list until late July. And I found out that for sure I would be teaching Social Studies 9, Social Studies 11, and History 12, English 8, English 10, and English 11, Junior High School Boys Phys Ed, Senior High School Boys Phys Ed, and Photography. So out of nine possible courses that I would be teaching, I was teaching nine out of nine and no spares with which to study. In other words, I had a lot of work to do. Now, luckily for me, at the same time that I got my course list, I also got keys to the school and a list of all of the different textbooks I would need for each class. So over the next month, I, uh, I went through carefully, painstakingly, every one of those textbooks. If I had any illusions walking into the, that month that university would have perfectly prepared me for everything that I needed to know about teaching, those illusions were shattered. What I realized, in fact, was that the most important lesson that I learned in university was how to learn. And that was a big deal because I had a lot to learn. So in between waitering shifts, I just remember immersing myself in crop rotation, Napoleon Bonaparte, Kaiser Wilhelm II, the Avro Arrow, the Great Depression, John Diefenbaker and the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Maginot Line, subjects and predicates, the Lord of the Flies, Flowers for Algernon, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, The Beep Test, Badminton, The 12-Minute Run, Aperture, Depth of Field, and Darkrooms. Looking back now, it was a whirlwind of a month, but you know what? It was also a lot of fun because I had this clarity of mission and this sense of urgency that I needed to get it done because I knew something that month. I knew that I needed to teach myself before I could teach anybody else. Does that make sense? In, in other words, I knew that I needed to have it in here before I could help anybody out there. And what I want to suggest to you today is that what's true for you and me academically is also true spiritually. We've been talking about it a lot this year, that it's rebuilding time. It's rebuilding time. It's rebuilding time. And, and what I want to suggest is that in my entire lifetime, I've never seen our mission as clear and urgent as it is today that our world is in desperate need, need of hope and help and strength and rebuilding. And I've also never seen it more clear and more urgent that God has placed us, the church, in this moment to provide that hope and help and strength and rebuilding. But here's the truth. Unless I have it here, I can't help anybody out there. So what you're going to notice in this season of our nation, in this season of history, is you're, you're going to notice a temptation and a tendency to drift. And I would suggest that it's not an accident. In fact, we have a spiritual enemy, the devil, and the devil knows that God wants to use you as part of the solution, that God wants you to be someone who brings hope and help and strength and rebuilding to the world. So the enemy wants to tempt you to drift. And here's the thing about you and me, like when we drift, when we allow life to happen to us, what always happens is we move from an area of rebuilding in our life to an area of destruction. You understand that, right? Like the enemy prefers destruction to rebuilding. He prefers darkness to light. He prefers weakness to strength. And so in this moment, what I want to suggest to you is what I knew all those years ago, getting ready to teach my first year of high school. Man, if we don't have it in here, we're not going to be able to help anybody out there. It's rebuilding time. 
it's rebuilding time. And when we have it in here, we can bring it and we can help out there. So we've been discussing the last chapter of the story of Nehemiah. Let's bring us up to speed real quick. That Nehemiah traveled 1,200 kilometers from Susa to Jerusalem. He assembled a team and they began to rebuild the broken down, ruined walls of the city. It's really important because in that culture at that time, when your walls were broken down, it meant that you were vulnerable, afraid, and endangered. But through many obstacles, Nehemiah and his team, they got the wall built. And then there was this big celebration. The whole city gathered together and Nehemiah stood up and he said, now we're living behind these beautiful walls. Let's build beautiful lives behind these beautiful walls. And the people say, yes, let's do it. And they make these three covenants to God. And Nehemiah heads back to Susa thinking that was a job well done. So he's back in Susa, scholars say between nine and 12 years, and he begins to get word that the people of Jerusalem are drifting, that they're building not so beautiful lives behind those beautiful walls. And so eventually Nehemiah heads back from Susa to Jerusalem. And one of the first things he sees is that Tobiah the Ammonite has been given a room in the court of the house of God, which is really bizarre. Because Tobiah the Ammonite, along with Sanballat the Samarian, were like the two biggest enemies of the Jewish people. They wanted the Jewish nation in Jerusalem. They, They wanted them downtrodden so they could continue to run roughshod over top of them. In fact, Sanballat and Tobiah so wanted to stop the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem that they plotted to murder Nehemiah. Nehemiah shows up and Tobiah has been given a room. And every time I think about that story, I just think about Nehemiah shaking his hand and grumbling to himself. Like, I don't know what ancient Hebrew is for, come on, man. But whatever it is, I'm sure that that's what Nehemiah was mumbling. Come on, man. Like, you have got to be kidding me. And he throws Tobiah's stuff out of the room. And I think to myself, that's a little bit like me. And that's why we talked about it last week, that over time, our discernment can drift. That next thing you know, just like those Israelites 2,500 years ago, man, we're going to places. We're going to patterns. We're going to platforms and hurts and habits and addictions. And we're going to people who lead us away from rebuilding and towards destruction. And the stakes are so incredibly high right now, because if I don't have it in here, if I'm not rebuilding in here, I can't help out there. So last week we talked about a drift in discernment. Today I want to talk about a drift in dedication. And we're going to continue reading in Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Nehemiah says this. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil into the storerooms. Remember me for this God and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. So I'm going to talk today about how, if we're not careful, our dedication can drift. The the problem with you and the problem with me is in this season of our life, there's going to be a tendency, there's going to be a temptation to drift. And when we drift, when we allow life to happen to us, we're going to move away from rebuilding and towards destruction. So I want to talk about how our dedication can drift in three main relationships. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with the church. Okay, but, but I want to kind of lay a framework first. So I'm going to tell you a, a quick story. Years ago, the psychology department of UCLA did a study. They brought in couples who had been married 
uh, between two and five years who described themselves as having a struggling marriage. And they sat down with each one of those couples and they spoke to them for about two hours and they recorded the conversation. They video recorded the conversation. And then they tracked every one of those couples. They tracked the couples whose marriage made it and the couples whose marriage did not make it. And what they tried to do is they tried to find uh, indicators or predictors in those two hour meetings that, that could tell them whether that marriage was going to make it or whether that marriage was not going to make it. And over time, what they found out was that, was that there was one key predictor that indicated a marriage that was actually not going to make it. I wonder if you could guess what it is. Here's the thing. It wasn't raised voices. It wasn't shouted disagreements. It wasn't even someone pounding on the table and yelling. You know what it was? It was an eye roll. That if one or both of, uh, of the couple, when the other one was talking, rolled their eyes, that was a predictor that in almost every case, that marriage would not make it. And what that reminds you and me of today is this. The opposite of love is not hate. Actually, the opposite of love is indifference. And it never happens all at once. We drift, we drift from love to indifference. Do you understand? Like we step by step, incrementally, we drift from love to indifference. Or let me say that a different way. We drift from gratitude to ingratitude. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a step-by-step incremental drift. And what I want to talk, talk about today is I want to talk about how um, that drift from love to indifference, that drift from gratitude towards ingratitude uh, impacts our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with the church. So first of all, let's talk about our relationship with God. Because you look at this story and, and, and Nehemiah is talking about the fact that the people are not supporting the church, that they're not tithing anymore. And, and, and I want to suggest to you that the reason that that happens is because somewhere their gratitude has drifted. They've gone from a place of gratitude to a place of ingratitude. I would go as far as to say this, that gratitude is fundamental to our relationship with God. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 18. Listen, he says this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I want you to think about that for a second. Maybe you've heard somebody uh, refer to Jesus before as the great physician. Well, the, way, the, the, the place they got that was a passage in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2, in which there's a bunch of Pharisees who come to Jesus and they challenge him. They say, Jesus, why do you hang around with like, emotionally sick people all the time. And he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And, and then he goes on to say, I didn't come here to call the righteous, but I came here to call sinners. Stop. Do you see it? The key to your relationship with God, the key to my relationship with God is a sense of gratitude. The, the, the two people in the story that Jesus tells back in, um, back in Luke 18, the one guy is looking saying, man, God, you're lucky to have me on your team. I saved myself. I'm healthy and I earned it. But the other one says, God, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. 
And when you get to that point, there's this sense of gratitude. And what I want to suggest to you is, is gratitude fuels our faith and faith propels us to action. It's so important that you hear that. I really want to say that again. Gratitude fuels our faith and faith propels us to action. Because what you might think I'm saying right now is you might think I'm saying this. Hey man, if you just had a little bit of sense of gratitude, you'd give money. You understand? Like after everything Jesus did for you, the least that you could do is throw him a five spot. I'm not saying that. I, I, I didn't say gratitude fuels your guilt. I said it actually fuels your faith. Let me explain. So if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see the story of the time that Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River into the promised land. And after they get across into the promised land, Joshua appoints one member from every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, go get a stone. And he sets the 12 stones up as a monument. And he instructs the people, he says, for generations and generations and generations to come, when you walk by these 12 stones and a child asks you, what's the deal with the 12 stones? You tell them. You say there was a time that we were in bondage in Egypt and God showed up because he's faithful. And, and, he, and he led us through the Red Sea on dry land because he's faithful. And we followed him, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night because he's faithful. He provided for us even as we wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, he's faithful. And then he stopped the waters of the Jordan River and we walked across into the promised land. Why? Because he's faithful. Or the prophet Samuel. The prophet Samuel is the prophet who actually anointed the first two kings of Israel. But before he anointed those kings, Samuel led uh, the Israelite army as the Philistines were attacking them and they defeated the Philistines. And when the battle was over, Samuel set up a, a, a monument called an Ebenezer stone. An Ebenezer stone. And the word Ebenezer out of Hebrew actually means this. With God's help, we got here. With God's help, we got here. Or how about the New Testament? The night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with, down with his disciples. And he took the bread and the wine. And he says, man, every time you celebrate communion, every time you take the bread and you drink the cup, you remember that my body was broken and my blood was spilt for you. So what's my point? My point is that gratitude fuels your faith. And then faith propels you to action. You understand? So let's take the Ebenezer stone. With God's help, we got here. See, when you look back and you remember with gratitude, with God's help, I got here. Then you absolutely have no doubt. And with his help, I'll get there, wherever there is. Do you understand? Or, or the words of that old song. It says, he's never failed and he won't start now. That gratitude fuels your faith and faith propels you to action. With God's help, we got here. With God's help, we'll get there. And, and, and so when there's this invitation to generosity, to, to give to the church, for example, you don't give to the church because you say, well, you know what? After everything Jesus did for you, come on, man, come on, give some money. It doesn't work that way. Here's how it works. You look back and you remember, God, you've been faithful every step of the way. And I'm grateful. And then you allow that gratitude to make you look. And when Jesus says, man, if, if, if you give, I'll bless you. Abundance, direction, contentment, and joy. And then because of that gratitude, fueling your faith, it propels you to action and you step up. So I want to give you some homework for this week. I want to say, let's stop the drift. If you're drifting right now in your relationship with God between love and indifference, between gratitude and ingratitude, I want to stop it. I want you to take two minutes. Can you take two minutes? Just two minutes every day. 
And, and, and I want you to look back at how faithful God's been to you. Maybe go back to that old hymn, Amazing Grace. And take a couple minutes every day and say, I was lost, but now I'm found. God, because you're faithful. I was blind, but now I see. God, because you're faithful. I was floundering, but now I'm free. God, because you're faithful. I was a sinner in need of a savior and you saved me. God, because you're faithful. Let's stop the drift. Gratitude is fundamental to our relationship with God and not just God, but also our relationship with others. You know that Jesus said that we'll make him famous if we love one another? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what does it mean to love one another? Maybe when you hear that, you think of this concept of, well, man, when, when Southside opens up our new church building, what it means is that we're going to have greeters at the door and they're going to enthusiastically hug everybody who walks in the door. Okay, they, they can't right now because of COVID, which honestly is a great thing. Like if there's one good thing about COVID, it's the prevention of a hit and run huggers. Like, do you understand what I'm saying? Like you walk into church, you don't really know anybody. And next thing you know, somebody jumps out and hugs you. You're like, dude, I don't even know you. And you're hugging me. And it's super weird. So, by the way, if you ever come to Southside, don't worry. We don't have hit and run huggers. We kick them all out of the church. So we're not totally kidding. I'm totally, no one's going to hug you. That's my point. Stay focused. Okay. No one's going to hug you. It's all going to be fine. So, so, so it's not necessarily that someone gives you an enthusiastic air five when you walk into church. I mean, that's a little part of it, but you know, it's way more difficult and actually way more important to love the people closest to you. And if you're going to drift from gratitude towards ingratitude, if you're going to drift from love towards indifference, it's probably going to happen with the people closest to you. And I know you've maybe heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Have you ever heard that? And I would say, no, it doesn't. That's not true. Familiarity doesn't have to breed contempt unless you allow yourself to drift. You, you think about that and it's actually pretty sad. Familiarity shouldn't breed contempt, not at all. Like we, we, we should stay grateful for our close friends and our family and the people that have been there for us over the years. I wanna speak specifically about your marriage. You can't drift in your marriage. You can't allow yourself to drift from love towards indifference or from gratitude towards ingratitude. But it happens all the time. And the, and the problem with that is like ingratitude always eventually leads to grumbling. And, and the reason why that is, by the way, is when you've stopped being grateful, this is what happens. You stop seeing the positive. And so all you see, if you have this lens of ingratitude, all you see is the negative. So eventually it comes out and you grumble. And, and then if you grumble for long enough, grumbling leads to gossip and gossip is an issue. There's exponential destructive power in gossip, right? Now, I don't have to prove that to you. If you grew up in a household where you had one of your parents who would trash talk the other one of your parents behind their back, okay, you didn't just look at that and say, well, that's weird and it's annoying. You understand it's actually destructive and you've seen it. See, the problem with that is spiritually speaking, right now we live in a world like none of us are perfect, okay? So none of us are on team perfect, but, but we live in this, this urgent time when we actually do have to pick a team. Team rebuilding or team destruction. And when you gossip, you've chosen sides. You've picked team destruction. And that's an issue. There's exponential power in gossip. So don't drift there. Because what happens is if you drift from gratitude towards ingratitude, eventually it'll lead to grumbling and eventually grumbling will lead to gossip. I've seen it in my life. 
I told you earlier about the last month before my first year of teaching. Now, a couple of years before that, I had made a decision. I had chosen a team. I wanted to be on uh, team rebuilding. And it's funny, when I look back at that month and everything that I was learning, I wanted, I wanted to teach myself so that I could teach them. I wanted to have it in here so that I could help out there. R- really, I wanted to be a great teacher, partly so that I could like, teach the stuff, but mostly so that I could help kids. And throughout the years, I've always tried to stay on that team, team rebuilding. So whether I was a teacher or a coach, an administrator, a youth pastor, or a pastor, I've done that. But every once in a while, someone will come along in my life and they'll decide that they're not on Team Mike. (laughs) They, they, They think I'm less than perfect. They think I'm an idiot, which I know it's hard to believe, isn't it? It's actually not hard to believe at all. Because there's so much imperfection about me. There's so many things that you could look at me and say, man, that guy's an idiot. And honestly, the same thing is true for you. There's nobody who's perfect. But what happens over time is every once in a while, those people will go from ingrateful to grumbling to gossip. And, and, and I'm telling you, there's, there, there's exponential destructive power to that. Not because it makes me really, really sad. Honestly, at this point in my life, I don't really care that much anymore. But here's the destructive power. Every time I step up to speak in a situation like this or wherever I am, I I come up because I feel like God has given me a message. Okay. And I want you to imagine just for a second that Fred Rico has been gossiping about me. (laughs) Fred Rico is a jerk. He's been saying mean stuff about me. Okay. So there's Fred Rico and he's gone from ingratitude to grumbling to gossip. Okay. And let's imagine God has given me a message for a person that has just stepped up, watched us online or stepped into an in-person experience for the first, second or third time. And, 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 and the message that God has for them is that he's not angry at them. He's for them. He doesn't hate them. He loves them. That no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done, because of Jesus, you can put your past behind you and the best is absolutely yet to come. And I want you to imagine that I step up and I deliver that message. But that person that needed to hear that message talked to Fred Rico earlier. And Fred Rico said, oh, Mike's an idiot. And that's the exponential destructive power of gossip. It's a problem. So I want to give you some homework. I want to ask you to take some time this week, again, maybe two minutes a day, and reach out to somebody in your life and say, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for you. And if you would tell me right now, man, when I think about the people who are closest to me in my life, I can't think of one thing that I'm grateful for, then you need to pray that God would give you new eyes and a soft heart. Gratitude, it's a big deal in our relationship with God, our relationship with other people, and also in our relationship with the church. So let me start here. I love our church. (laughs) I love that you're a part of it. It's amazing. The church is so powerful because uh, the, the church is God's idea established by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring strength and hope and help and rebuilding to a world that really needs it. It's God's plan A and there is no plan B. But what I've noticed is there's a lot of people out there. There's a movement out there. there, there, there there's an attack out there. I would go back to this, the, the story I told you earlier where I said, man, I've experienced a little bit of gossip in my life as a teacher, as a coach, as a youth pastor. Never have I experienced the kind of gossip that I have experienced uh, until I became a lead pastor of a church. And I want you to think about this just for a second. I'll, 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 because cause, cause here's what I could say. I could say, you know why? Because the church is full of doofuses. Like it's just a bunch of idiots and they talk about people, but that's not true. Amazing people in the church. 
So why is gossip such an issue in the church? If you ask me, by the way, what's, what's, what's the biggest hindrance? What's the biggest threat to the mission of the church in this pivotal time in our history? I would not say atheism. I would not say materialism. I would not even say the coronavirus. I would say gossip from inside leading to disunity. So here's the thing, every once in a while, I'll see it play out. You know, someone will say, man, I, I just ah, get so annoyed at the church. Everywhere I look, there's a fault. And here's the joke, right? You look at someone like that and you say, hey man, it sounds like you're looking for a perfect church. Can you do me a favor? If you ever, if you ever find one, don't go there because you'd ruin it. But here's the logic behind the laugh. The logic is this. Um, the reason why the church is so complicated, the reason why the church is so imperfect is because it's full of imperfect people. And yet, and yet God has breathed miraculous power into the church. The miracle of a bunch of imperfect people being empowered and used by a perfect God is absolutely incredible. Or you have people say this, man, I would never go to that church. It's, it's too full of hypocrites. And of course, here's the joke. No, don't let that stop you. We can always make room for one more, but here's the logic behind the laugh. The logic behind the laugh is, What's your definition of a hypocrite? Is a hypocrite somebody who uh, says they believe one thing, but then every once in a while, <coughs> sorry, uh, someone who says they believe, so, someone who says they believe one thing, but then every once in a while, their words and their actions don't necessarily match up with what they say that they believe. Well, in that case, who's a hypocrite? Everybody. See, I think it's important that we know that, 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 that God takes imperfect people like you and me and, and he brings us together to do miraculous things. Augustine said it this way, he cannot have God for his father who will not have the church for his mother. Man, I love our church. I love our church. And, and, and I know every once in a while I hear somebody say, I don't go to church. You know what my church is? I go hiking with a few buddies and, and we do church. You know, know that you know that that's not actually church, right? Like that's a friend group, and and, and it's awesome. But let let me, let me guess. Let me guess. Your, your hiking buddies. I'm gonna guess that you're all about the same age. I'm gonna guess you all wear pretty much the same clothes, talk pretty much the same way, um, enjoy pretty much the same activities, and vote for the same political parties. That, that that that's an awesome friend group, but it's not the church. Right, the church is supposed to be a personification of what the apostle Paul said when he said, I'm all things, I will be all things to all people. The church is formed to be, earlier I mentioned the word university. You know what university, the word university comes from this, uh, from these two words, unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. That's what the church is supposed to be, unity within diversity. The church is supposed to represent all kinds of diversity, all kinds of generations, all kinds of walks of life, all, 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 all kinds of skin colors and ages and stages and jobs. And we, we should not only just tolerate our diversity, but we should celebrate it. And in fact, the only thing that we should celebrate more enthusiastically than the diversity of the church is our unity, that we would always remember that we have one savior and one purpose and one mission and one destiny. That's the church. I love our church. Look, I'm not saying that you should blindly back some church that is off the rails, but if you have a church full of imperfect people that's looking to glorify God and change the world, let's go. Let's, let's love our church. And it's difficult in some ways, right? Maybe it's because we live in a country that's kind of famous 
for putting a question mark on the end of sentences that the rest of the world ends with a period or an exclamation mark. Have you noticed that? See, I'm from Canada. And so what, what people say in a lot of parts of the world, they'll say something like this. It's a beautiful day today, exclamation mark. Not Canadians. Canadians don't say that. Canadians would say, it's a beautiful day today, eh? Right? Be- because, you know what? Maybe you don't like 27 degrees and sunny. Maybe that's not your idea of a beautiful day and I don't want to offend you, right? Or, or around the world, other people would say something like this. That, that was a great game last night, exclamation mark. Not Canadians. Canadians would say, that was a great game last night, eh? Question mark. See, maybe you're a Canucks fan and the Canucks beat the Oilers and you say that, but you don't know the person you're talking to might be an Oilers fan and they might be sad because they've taken a lot of abuse over the years because the Oilers lose so much and so you don't want to hurt their feelings. I want to suggest to you that's great that you don't want to hurt people's feelings, but I want to tell you, I love our church, period. I love it. And there's certain things, I want to give you seven statements that we make. If you want to understand what this church is all about, I want to give us seven statements. And you know what? None of the seven statements actually ends with a question mark. They all end with exclamation marks. So here's the first. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. Our life is empowered. Our eternity is beyond beautiful. Jesus saves. I I said earlier, there's exponential destructive power in gossip. There's exponential rebuilding power in one changed life. Have you ever thought about that? We talk about the fact that Jesus wants to use this church to change our world, one life, one story at a time. Have you ever thought about that? The rebuilding power of one changed life, the rebuilding power of one sinner forgiven, the rebuilding power of one marriage saved, the rebuilding power of one family restored, the rebuilding power of one lonely person enfolded into community, the rebuilding power of one forgotten person remembered. Jesus changes history. Jesus changes eternity. One life, one story at a time. Jesus saves. Secondly, disciples grow. Disciples grow. We don't drift. Oh, we might drift for a season, but then we come back because we know that if I don't have it here, if I don't have rebuilding here, I can't bring it out there. So we don't tolerate, we don't, we don't tolerate drifting in ourselves. We move, we move away from ingratitude, back towards gratitude, away from indifference, back towards love. Disciples grow. Next, save people serve. Save people serve. I'll look back at everything that God has done for me with a sense of gratitude. And gratitude fuels faith. So when I hear Jesus say, when you follow me, you're not here to be served, but to serve. And as you serve, you will be blessed. Guess what? It propels me to action because I trust him. He's never failed and he won't start now. Save people serve. And I know you probably heard a lot over the last few weeks about the fact that we're moving into a brand new facility in the next little while. It's going to change our in-person experience. It's going to change our online experience. And we'd love as many people as possible, man. Just take a second and text the keyword serve, serve to 604-670-3040. We'd love for you to be a part of it, whether it's in-person or online. But one of the things that I've been hearing everybody say is they've been saying, we don't know exactly what that experience is going to look like when we move into the new building because of COVID and everything going on. But it's weird because I know exactly what it's going to look like. 
Maybe it's because I'm the lead pastor and I'm older and wiser than those wing nuts. But, but I've been doing a lot of thinking. I went up to, the, to a mountaintop to actually pray about it. And this is what I came up with. I know exactly what the new facility is going to be like, the in-person experience and the online experience. It's going to be exactly like this. Awesome. It's going to be awesome. You should be a part of it. Safe people serve. And the next one is found people, find people. No question mark. Found people, find people. In other words, inside of me, there's rebuilding happening. And that's from Jesus. And the story of the gospel is, is, is the story that Jesus saves. And so I preach the gospel. I preach the gospel. I preach the gospel by the way I love my wife. I preach the gospel by the way that I parent my kids. I preach the gospel by the way that I coach that team. I preach the gospel by the way that I work my job. I preach the gospel by the way that I own that company. And, and yeah, you know what? I also get to tell my story. Isn't that awesome that I don't need to be a judge who passes sentence on anybody? That I don't need to be a lawyer who argues my case? I just get to be a witness. Just tell my story. I can tell the world, man, this is what Jesus has done for me. And I know, I know, I know that he can do the same for you. And, and, and I preach the gospel by inviting other people to church. Whether that's online by sending a share or an invite, or whether that's bringing somebody with you to the in-person experience. And it's just such an awesome opportunity. Found people, find people, no question mark. And next, God's people give. Again, I look back in gratitude for, at everything that God has done for me. And that gratitude fuels my faith. So when God says to me that when you give, I'm inviting you into abundance, direction, contentment, and joy, I believe him because my faith fuels my action. God's people give, exclamation mark. And next, we're in this together. Man, I love our church. I love you whether you're right here in the Fraser Valley or on the other side of the world, I just, I just love that we get to do life together and we get to be uh, on this mission together. We're in this together. So let's not drift now. Hey, let's not drift now. I don't know where you've been yesterday or the day before, but today, let, hey, let, 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 let's get back from ingratitude to gratitude. Let's get back from indifference to love. Let's go, let's not drift now. And finally, the seventh thing I want to tell you about this church is that it's rebuilding time. It's rebuilding time. And listen, when I have it here, when I have it here, I can help out there. That's it. That's us. So just before I close today, I just want to ask you, how are you doing in here? I told you that Jesus saves and I really, really meant it, that, that God sent Jesus into human history and he lived, died, and rose again for you so that your sins can be forgiven. It's performance-based acceptance. You're accepted fully and completely because of Jesus' performance. So I want to ask you, have you ever accepted his gift when he died on the cross, when he rose again, so that you can have strength for today, hope for tomorrow, and the promise of eternity. Have you ever accepted that gift? Because I want to give you the chance to do that right now. It's really simple. You just pray and, and accept the gift that Jesus purchased for you. So if that's you, if today is the day that you want to start rebuilding and you want to start inside of you so that you can help out there, I want to lead you in a prayer. So just wherever you are um, watching this, I'm just going to pray out loud while you pray along silently. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you love me, that you're not against me, that you're for me, and that you died for me. And so today, Jesus, I ask you to be my savior, that you would forgive all my sins, and that I also invite you to be my Lord, that you would give me the strength to follow you, to live the life that I was created to live in this moment. It's rebuilding time, and I pray that you would start inside of me and then use my change to change this world and change the people around me. I pray this all in your name. Amen.
Amen. So hey, if you just prayed that prayer for the first time, I'm so stoked for you. So I just ask you to take a second and text the keyword LIFE, L-I-F-E, to 604-670-3040. We're not going to stalk you. We're not going to stalk you, but we really want to support you because this Christian life, we are in this together. We're supposed to support each other, and that's what we want to do. And finally, I just want to tell you, I love our church. I love you. I love you. Hey, don't forget your homework this week, okay? A couple minutes every day, just remembering everything that God has done for you. It's going to fuel your faith and propel you into great action, becoming everything that you were created to be. And secondly, taking a couple minutes every day and just thinking about the people closest to you in your life. And just be grateful. Say thank you. Honestly, it'll change your relationships. It'll change you for the better. I love you guys a lot, and we'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And to stay up to date with all things Southside, follow at Southside underscore church on Instagram. We love you guys. The best is yet to come.